Hello. Robert Francis, in his um, inquiry report, was very clear how dismally we had failed to listen to patient voices. I think his analysis was searingly powerful and good. I thought his solutions in that particular area were virtually non-existent. And some of us have, uh, I feel I've spent half my life actually pushing the boulder of patient involvement up the hill only to have it slip from my grasp and roll back down again just as I was about to get to the top. But I'm an optimist. I'm still an optimist, although I, I like the definition of, of an optimist as uh, a pessimist who isn't in touch with reality. <laughs> so, one last shove, folks. One last shove should do it. And I just wonder whether patient leadership and citizen leadership aren't that last shove, that we might just have an opportunity to change things. That that will only happen if you, all of you, want it too. If you, all of you, understand what it really means, and only if you, all of you, realise that it means change, and that change can be difficult for you as well as for the NHS. And it's not to say that there isn't, as we know, a lot of good happening, and many of you are actively involved in all kinds of different organisations and all kinds of different ways in bringing about change. And there are many, many people who work in the NHS who do care about this change. But I think that Midstaffs and its aftermath does show us that what is needed is absolutely not more of the same, but a completely different kind of engagement and a different kind of behaviour on the part of those of us who work for and with patients as well as those who work in management and in clinical practice. And that's what patient leadership, I think, um, particularly if I can say this and declare a slight interest, um, because I've worked with Mark Doughty and David Gilbert for several years on this, uh, particularly their model uh, could just be a game changer. And I'm sorry just to say this in the King's Fund, because at the King's Fund they really started fantastic leadership programmes but there's an awful lot of guff talked about leadership. There are an awful lot of people who've never been leaders teaching people who never will be leaders <laughs> how to be leaders. And it doesn't work. And I don't know whether you know the wonderful little poem by Roger McGough which I'm very fond of. It goes, I want to be the leader. I want to be the leader. Can I be the leader? Can I? I can. I am the leader. What shall we do now? <laughs> so that's not to say that leaders can't learn. It's not to say that leaders can't be helped 
to know their own strengths and weaknesses. But the idea that everyone's a leader is vacuous. Leaders are defined not by themselves, but by others. Leaders without followers are pointless, useless. Leaders dangling in the wind. So I just wanted to share with you my uh, observation of different kinds of leaders over the years. And each of these different kinds of leaders has their place. Uh, there are seven of them. It's always useful, isn't it, to have five or seven or three. But there are seven types of leadership, I think. So there are charismatic leaders. They're very rare, and they're also quite dangerous. And you can't train to be one. The most significant thing about charismatic leaders is they're just what they are, and uh, the rest of us just have to work around them, I think. <laughs> then there are power leaders. The top echelons of the NHS has been full of power leaders. And power leaders, I'm afraid, can be uh, very difficult, very demanding, and can occasionally be people that are observed by others as bullies. Then there are manipulative leaders. Those are the cunning ones who manage to get you to do what they want you to do before you've noticed that you'd ever agreed to do it in the first place and are not quite sure what it is after you've done it. <laughs> then there are intellectual leaders, the people who sow ideas into the world and make things change because of their uh, intellectual strength and the currency of their ideas. There are emotional leaders, a very important group, those who can use their, uh, their own emotional intelligence to work with and enable and empower others and, and who use emotional intelligence as a leadership tool. There are moral leaders, those who can hold to the centre of moral purpose when things are challenging and difficult. And finally, there are an important group, which many of us are at different times in our life, temporary leaders or reluctant leaders, those who step up when there's a crisis, those who emerge suddenly just because no one else is there to take a lead at that moment, and who may be people who either after that experience of becoming at least a temporary leader move on and make something more of that as part of their life, or who just slip back into the background when the crisis is passed. And they're amongst some of the leaders I've met and known who I've most admired. We can't, any of us, I think, really choose to be charismatic leaders, but actually we can, all of us as leaders, use all those other styles of leadership. We can use being a power leader when it's necessary to drive through change. We can use being an intellectual leader when it's important to sow new ideas and to change uh, people's thinking in order to prepare the ground. We can use being emotional leaders because of our uh, need to bring other people along with us. We know when it's sometimes Good to be a manipulative leader, to be cunning for good purpose. So I think that le those leadership styles, those six 
of the seven leadership styles are actually things that all of us as, as people can learn to use at the appropriate time and the appropriate moment. And that seems to me to be at the core of what we're trying to develop in patient and citizen leadership. Leaders, real leaders, always show the behaviours that they expect others to emulate. And that, I'm afraid, is also a key part of moral leadership. And I think it has been sometimes lacking in our current NHS. I think we developed in the NHS uh, a situation over recent years, and I, um, I wrote about this uh, earlier this year, uh, where the technical skills and the business skills of NHS leadership were given much higher weight than the personal and moral role of NHS leadership. And I think we need those three elements, personal behaviours, technical skills, and business understanding, in order to be good leaders in the public service. We were asked by the uh, last Secretary of State uh, at the Professional Standards Authority to write some standards for NHS boards and clinical commissioning groups. And uh, <clears throat> as part of developing those, we interviewed over 40 people who had held senior management positions in the NHS. And virtually all of them raised bullying as an issue, as something that they had experienced. And nearly all of them said that they had done something. I have to say they said this in answer to a question. But, you know, we asked all of them, have you ever done anything that you knew to be wrong? And I would say 39 out of 40 said yes. They had done something they knew to be wrong because they were instructed to do it or felt coerced into doing it by someone more senior than them. And they felt their career or their progression or their position at that time was at risk if they didn't do it. So that's a really an important example of power leadership in practice. And power leaders are also usually manipulative leaders. You often find that their hands are clean because others have carried out the executions for them. And this is not just about management. I, you only have to ask junior doctors and you'll find out what they think of clinical leaders. Or you only have to engage as uh, and I'm sure other colleagues here occasionally have done in negotiations with the British Medical Association to know what uh, that kind of leadership is like. So what's all this got to do with patient leaders? Well, I think it's because what we're trying to achieve with patient leadership or citizen leadership in its different forms is to enable people to find in themselves not to give them, not to teach them, but to help them to find in themselves that full repertoire of skills, styles and roles of leadership that have been successful for managerial and clinical leaders so that we can rebalance the debate between the actors in the health system. Clinical leaders are important. Clinical leaders matter. Some, some clinical leaders, one thinks of Bruce Keogh and others, have really made fantastic changes, including changes in the way patients are looked at and communicated with. 
But we need to rebalance the triangle of management, clinical and patient leadership. We need patient leaders to have reflective practice, just as professionals do. How did I do? Did I manage that well? Can I learn from my own success and failure? I liked Mark's point just a moment ago about patient leaders as people who come to solve problems, not to bring problems. And I think that's an important message to add to this. But if that's what you want, be careful what you wish for. Because patient leadership means challenge. And it means change, and that means discomfort. So to repeat, that's why it is rubbish to say everyone's a leader. When patient leaders arrive, clinical leaders and managerial leaders will have to give way. If they don't want to change their own leadership or style, then don't invite patients in. Don't invite patient leaders to your party if you don't want them to dance with you. And so often, I think, people are invited to the party and left in the chairs at the side of the room. So it's a bit of a platitude to say that all radical ideas, and I think this is a radical idea, are adopted by the establishment in order to neutralise them. But <clears throat> I'm sure we've all observed it happening many times. And that is, I think, the moment that we are at today. I applaud the King's Fund and National Voices for creating this event and recognising patient and citizen leaders. But this, this is only about neutralising the force of patient leadership as a power for change, for co-opting patient leadership into comfortableness, then we will have lost an important opportunity for transforming the NHS and changing its culture in the way that we know needs to happen and which Robert Francis so clearly identified. If in three years' time, say, we have lots of patient leaders and nothing has changed, we have failed. But if instead we can say patient leaders have really made a difference to attitude, to quality, to services, to relationships, then we will have succeeded. It's up to us. That's leadership. Thank you.